And now a word from one of our Bible Live sponsors. Our company is so proud and excited to sponsor the Bible Live. As a businessman, I have to make decisions every day about how to best invest time, personnel, and resources for the best return and results. The scriptures say there are two things on earth that will last forever, God's Word and the souls of people. It's my hope that you, your family, your church, and perhaps even your business will pray about giving a tax-deductible donation to the Bible Live at this time. Together, let's expand this historic broadcast of the scriptures to other cities across our nation, a sound investment for both time and eternity. You can donate by credit card at the Bible Live website www.thebiblelive.com or mail your check for The Bible Live to P.O. Box 18888. That's P.O. Box 18888, San Antonio, Texas 78218. Welcome to The Bible Live Quiz Hour. It's time to test and grow your knowledge of the Bible. The entire Bible every year. On Sunday nights at 9, join us here for the Bible Live Quiz Hour. Sophie will ask questions from the Bible Live leads. You call in with the correct answers, and you win. It's just that simple. So get out your Bible, put on your thinking cap, and hit that speed dial. Because here's the host of the Bible Live. Your Apache Indian scout through the book of books, Sophie Dollar. And welcome to the Bible Live Quiz Show this Sunday evening. Hope you're having a great night. I am John Harrison. I am not Soapy Dollar, sadly. He's away from the studio. But we do have our wonderful co-host, Jacob. Jacob Jacob is here, and he's got a special guest with us tonight. It's going to be a wonderful hour and a half of great Bible Live programming. Hey, great. And listen, I'm going to have on here, in place of Soapy, not replacing him, but a fabulous alternative. His name is well, Mike. We'll see, we'll see if we're going to replace him. <laughs> you know, Soapy might be listening. At <laughs> um, any rate, his name is Mike McDowell. And I'll give you a little uh, introduction, a little spiel about him. But first I'll say, hello, Mike. Hello. How's it going, Jake? Okay. Oh, please, everybody, hold it down. Hold it down. Woo! Okay. Let me all tell you a little bit about Mike McDowell. He is, uh, I don't want anybody to be upset, he is a professor, and he does have, like, a doctorate and stuff, so we're going to, you know, we're going to have to understand if he doesn't get a lot of things right, you know. Oh, that hurts so uh, badly. But but he is a professor of philosophy. He teaches at a local college. He's also uh, an adjunct professor at Liberty University, the famous Christian university that everybody knows. And, uh, you know, he did have a, he's got a Ph.D., but his emphasis is in philosophy, Religion and Christian ethics. Now, there's a, something to ponder. And uh, and he went to Southwest Baptist Theological Seminary. He has a master's in theology and Christian education from Dallas Theological Seminary. That's a Baptist place, I understand. I understand Soapy might have gone there. At any rate, he also knows something about something called applied philosophy and ethics. I don't know what that means, but it has something to do with applying to whatever it is you know. And in 2009, believe it or not, he also co-authored a book with a, that means with somebody else. And it was World Religions at Your Fingertips. So he's got all these summaries on his fingertips. 
Uh, and uh, anyway, he's been married to a woman that has managed to really be, be the fulcrum to make him have a great success in his life. He's been married for 35 years, and he has his, her name is Linda, and they have four children, Daniel, Melinda, Nathan, and Micah, all good biblical names, except for Melinda. Of course, I don't know why they left her out. You know? Oh. Uh, but uh, but they also have two grandchildren, James and Alice. I guess they've left the... Well, James is still biblical. But he's also a member of a local large Baptist church, and he does teach a class there, which I do attend uh, because he allows me to upon occasion. I never talk because he always corrects me because he's got a Ph.D. Oh, that's not true. Okay. Anyway, so that's Mike. So, Mike, uh, I have a, before we get started, I'm going to let you tell just a little bit about yourself, but I do have a couple of questions that I'd like you to answer for our audience, okay? Okay. What's your favorite color? My favorite color? Blue. Blue. you got to yeah. speak up, Mike. Speak up. Don't be afraid or embarrass the blue. All right. Um, I thought you were going to say red there for a minute, but... Um, anyway, then, uh, and what is your favorite food? Mexican. That's not a food. That's a nationality. That is a food group. Oh, okay. He's, a food, he's talking about food groups. So what is your favorite food in the food group of Mexican? Enchiladas. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Well, tonight we're going to talk about, I'm going to give Mike a chance to talk a little bit about himself if he'd like. But we're going to hit Job, somewhat in Ecclesiastes. We're going to skip Song of Songs, I do hope. Oh. And then, well, I just heard, a, oh, that sounds like we're not. And then uh, then we're going to go into Galatians, which is on the Christian side of the Bible. I'm always hesitant to say that because one time I was at a place and I was making a joke because I thought it was funny. And I said to somebody, well, um, you know, and it was a Christian group. And I said, you know, over on your side of the Bible, and this woman got upset with me. She said, the whole Bible's ours. And I said, oh, okay, so I'm always reluctant to say it. But until that night, I thought it was funny. Yeah. But we'll be doing Galatians. So, Mike, let's touch base with you. Tell us something that you would like to share with people about yourself. Okay, just a, a couple of things. Uh, first off, uh, uh, very well presented. That's just like I wrote it, uh, all the uh, information about me. <laughs> I, what... Uh, what I want to say is is that uh, of all the accomplishments that I've been uh, able to get done in my life, probably the most important accomplishment to me is uh, my family, my wife, and my children. I have four adult children. They all love the Lord. Uh, my grandchildren are being raised, being raised in the Lord. And I'm just uh, extremely grateful uh, for God's work in my life over there. Really, the last 40 years, I've been a Christian for 40 years now, and so uh, that's, a, that's an amazing blessing to me. The other thing I want to say is, is that I just love this show. Um, I am a, I'm a huge fan. I listen every single week. And the reason is, is because from the very first time I started listening to this show, I realized that Soapy and Jacob love the Word of God, and they want to understand it. They are working. They're seeking to explain it and uh, understand it in the best way they can. And I always hear something, I mean, with all my seminary education, I always hear something that I've never heard at seminary when I listen to this show. So it's, uh, it's quite exciting for me to be with you all tonight. 
Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. And as I always tell Soapy, of course, I usually tell it to him when he's not listening. But I usually say, Soapy, you go ahead and do the Christian side, then I'll do the correct one. <laughs> That's a joke. That's a joke, folks. The, don't worry about the emails. I was joking. Soapy's a very novel guy. Oh, I heard that. Okay, so, at any rate... <laughs> all right, so why don't we kind of dig into the book of Job, because we're going to finish the last five chapters, and Mike is a very, actually, all joking aside, Mike's a scholar, he knows a lot about the Bible, he teaches uh, the Bible and comparative religion and ethics and all that, so he's a very smart guy, he's probably much smarter than I am, but I'll talk faster. So, at any rate, so Mike, why don't we start in at Job, and... Uh, uh, one of the do you have something that was tra- attracts your attention about Job primarily the last five chapters, but anything in particular you'd like to address? Because feel free. Yeah, I wanted to talk about a couple of things. Uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I know when y'all first started talking about this, you went to the first chapter, and uh, and then to the last chapter. Ah, and yeah. You said, let's start at the last chapter first and uh-huh. then go back to chapter yeah. one and, and, and move forward. And I thought that was actually uh, quite smart, but I, I don't want to go to where you went to in the last chapter. Oh, thank goodness. Um, <laughs> I, I, I would like, uh, could, could we turn to Job 42, uh, 1 to 6? I, I think we can. Can we do that, John? Yeah. Uh, John seems to uh, say it's okay. Okay. Well, if John says it's okay, then Yes, it's okay. It's okay. Okay, chapter uh, 42, you say? Yeah, Job okay. 42, 1 to 6. Uh-huh. Because um, I often hear people say this. They'll say, well, you know, God doesn't really tell us why he allowed all these things to happen to Job and why he, why he uh, 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 had this whole discussion with Satan, the Satan, the adversary, to start with. And so... Uh, I don't. It is true the scriptures don't tell us directly, but I believe that there's a clue in this in this last section, uh, Job forty two one to six. And so, uh, a couple of comments I'll make about this. One is is that when you look at Job thirty eight, when God shows up, uh-huh. Job thirty eight of uh, one, uh, two, and three. You'll okay. notice that uh, Job is really just repeating the same things that God said uh, in Job 38, but he's uh, personalizing it. And so uh, look at what he says. He says, I, uh, uh, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. Now, one of the things that's fascinating is, if you turn back to Job 38, when God shows up, and this is immediately after Elihu, and I, I just hold this thought, Jacob, but uh-huh. uh, I, I'm interested in what your opinion is of Elihu, because I have a quite positive opinion of him. Uh, he, he's the one uh, of the, the speakers that doesn't have a critique. It's just God just launches into his discussion immediately following. And I'm interested in what the, in what the Hebrew perspective is on this, 
But notice what happens in Job 38.1. It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. And then he, he launches into discussion. But notice how this parallels what's going on in Job 42. Uh, uh, it's the same thing. Job's just responding. He, he just repeats back uh, the words of the Lord. But it's interesting. Verse 2, he says, Who is this that darkens counsels by words without knowledge? And I did a little, uh, a little bit of research on this. And it seems that the, the words without knowledge is the issue because uh, the Hebrew word that's used there is uh, uh, it's discernment, wisdom, understanding. It's, it's probably the nuance is something like knowledge possessed by God. And so um, I, uh, I think what's happening is, is when you go to Job 40... May I interrupt? Speaking of knowledge possessed by God, if God wanted to know the phone number for the show, in case somebody wanted to call in, would, would you happen to know that number, Mike? I actually do. I'm looking at it. It's 210-340-9585. Well, let me make sure I was writing it down. Did you say 210-340-9585? I did. Well, I wrote it down. Right? Okay, I got it right. Thanks. Okay, excellent. I, uh, so I, I guess all I want to say about this is, is it's interesting because Job repeats back these words, and I think the key to understanding... What, um, why all this happened? Uh, you go back to the first of the book. Let's go back to the very first of the book, Job wow. chapter one. Okay. And I'm going to go to verse five. Verse five. five. All right says, when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, uh-huh. Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So one of the things that we see from Job is, is a kind of fearfulness that maybe not just he's not doing, he, he's doing everything he can on his side of things, but he's concerned about his children as well. He's so concerned that he's doing these offerings for, uh, for uh, on, on their behalf, on their behalf. And what this reveals is a little bit of maybe a misunderstanding of Job about God. Uh, I think when you, uh, when you see what he says in Job 42, he said, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear. He says, but now my eye sees you. And uh, it, it seems this this ancient book, this very old book, by the way, which um, is really, I think, trying to answer this question: Why is it that good things happen? Why is it that bad things happen to good people? I think as as he's as this is kind of working itself out, Job learns something new about God that he didn't know before, and so uh, part of this this whole story is it's this this poetic story that's being played out is is that uh job is he's moving to a new level of relationship with god so for example uh when you talk about hearing about god you can know about somebody but 
uh, and no facts about them. He, he may have known all about God, but did he really know God in a more personal way? And uh, it seems that when he gets to the end, he says, yeah, I'd heard about you before, but he said, now I've seen you. Now, now I actually uh, – uh, it, it's an intimate knowledge. So um, is is that lack of knowledge? Do you think that could be construed as a sin? I don't. I don't think of it as a sin. When when God speaks of Him, He speaks of Him as being righteous. I I just think of it as being uh, incomplete. He just his understanding of God is incomplete. So you know, a lot of times when we talk about the friends, we talk about the friends as being you know, having a wrong view of God, and they certainly did. But I would suggest that maybe Job had a, a insufficient view of God at the very least. And so part of uh, what this is working out is, is that uh, Job, at the end of it all, has a more intimate relationship with God. So when we think about suffering, we tend to think about think about it as being something that's you know, always negative and always harmful, and, and it's something that nobody wants to go through. But it seems that what this story says is, is that when people endure suffering, one of the things that comes out of it is, is they know God in ways that some of us who that don't really suffer, uh, they know him in a more intimate way, at least those that choose to embrace him. I mean, some will choose to do otherwise. Hmm. Well, I hear what you're saying, and I know that uh, there was a time, where was it, in the late 60s, 70s, that there was a theme running around. I think somebody wrote a book saying, Is God Dead? And I do know that a lot of people that came out of the, the Holocaust in Germany, that they uh, they have, they totally, uh, they still identify perhaps as being Jewish, but they sure lost a lot of confidence in God. And I don't really feel that it was not everybody, but there was a large number that felt it was kind of fruitless to pray, kind of not helpful no matter what you did, because God's going to do whatever he wants to do, and you're not going to persuade him differently. Yeah. And so is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Yeah, I, I, I think what you're talking about there is what's sometimes called the pastoral problem of evil. So when we're, when we're talking to people that have gone through just serious struggle and pain and suffering— and uh, we start saying to them, well, let me give you a philosophical approach to try to handle this. Uh, it's probably not that helpful, honestly. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't change the fact of something being true, right? So uh, there's the pastoral problem, but you, there's also the philosophical problem and the theological problem of evil. And that's really what I think Job is trying to deal with. So uh, at, at the end of the day, when uh, we're talking about this, I think what I— what I wanted to emphasize out of Job 42 is, is there's a vast difference between knowing about God and knowing God. So uh, I, I hesitate to use I hesitate to use this uh, this example because uh, I, some some of my audience uh, some will be very happy I use it. But so uh, uh, President Trump. Now, hey, yikes! Uh, Who's, yeah, that? Right. Who's that? Who's um, that? There. Let's suppose that someone decided they were going to study and learn everything they could possibly learn about President Trump. They they uh, read every biography he ever wrote. They 
went out and studied and did just a huge amount of research about President Trump. They found all the information that was possibly available about President Trump, all the facts that they could possibly have. Mm-hmm. Okay. What would be different? Do you think that they would that they would have a knowledge of President Trump? Say that say uh, Melania or uh, his family or uh, the people in the White House would they have the same kind of knowledge? Uh, just so nobody in the audience gets up upset, I just want to say another name that is a counterbalance. I will say Alexandria Casio Cortez. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine, fine. Uh, uh, but but there's a vast difference between knowing about somebody and knowing somebody, right? And so what Job is about here is, it's, he says at the end of it, he said, you know, before I knew about you, God, but now I know you. And I think that is an amazing truth from the Scriptures. Well, it is. Uh, and there's no doubt it's a, it's a tough, tough book. And as I understand it, it's the oldest book of the Bible. Now, Genesis tells the story of the beginning, but the oldest written book, I understand, is uh, the book of Job. But something interesting, you mentioned Elihu. Yes. Do you know what that means from Hebrew? No, I don't. Would you like to know? I would love to. Me too. No. <laughs> it's, uh, it means, well, I'm going to make it flow in English. It says, he is my God. He is my God. That's actually what it means. Mm. Now, in the Bible, we know how much time we have, John, for the break. About four minutes, okay. Well, I'll tell you real quick. What's interesting is we know that in the Bible, names sometimes change. And sometimes you get a one of the letters from God's name put on somebody else's name, like Hosea. You get a J put on, it becomes a Joshua. That takes place in the book of Numbers. And we know sometimes that if there's a letter of God's name, it gets taken off their name. So with that theory in mind, there is, I would like to propose an interesting thought, which is really not my thought, but uh, if he is my God is his name, if I add the letter J, Eliyahu in Hebrew, which would be Elijah, some people have suggested, and I kind of like the idea, because we know that this may, God does not criticize anything that Elihu says. He only criticizes the other guys. So this may be our first appearance of Elijah. And then instead mm. of he is my God, his name is Yah is my God. Mm. Interesting. Interesting, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, and I, I do catch what you're saying about Job. Uh, you know, I don't know, though. I mean, it's there's something that bothers me with saying, oh, I really know you now. I've lost all my property. I've got boils and my kids are dead. <laughs> I really I really know you now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I mean, man, uh, you know, I understand what you're saying, but uh, I'm trying, you know, this is one of those things that's a real dilemma. So, yeah, but it's, it's supposed to be a dilemma. It's difficult. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And I, I just want, you mentioned Elihu, and I thought it was, uh, uh, fascinating what you're yeah. saying about El- Elihu, yeah. Yeah, uh, Elihu, excuse yeah. me. Yeah, uh, that's okay. Spoken from the Hebrew. No, that's a- uh, so one of the things that I think is fascinating about him is, is that there's, there's, there's no criticism of him. Uh, there's no offering made by Job. Uh, right. uh, and after uh, he speaks, God just, init- just jumps into it. It's almost as if 
if we were watching a, a, a wrestling match, and you, you ever watch the wrestling where they have the tag team? Yes. And so uh, it's and like it's all real, right? Yeah, Elihu. Yeah. Elihu is uh, uh, he's laying it, laying yeah. out yeah. Uh, the truth. Right. And then God says, "Okay, I got this tag," and he comes in and finishes finishes it out. And I, and I, I, I as I was thinking about this, and, and and just thinking about application, it struck me that God often uses both people. And his word to correct bad thinking. So he uses human individuals who come into our lives and speak truth. And then his word as well. So what we have with Job is, is about, I mean, we've gone now uh, 38 chapters of bad thinking from Job. He, well, the first two chapters, we'll cut him some slack. He, he seemed to be on the right track. But... Uh, well, we know that God himself has said in the beginning that Job is righteous. Yeah. So we have a, a view that his three friends do not have. So we've got like this, it's almost like a movie. we got like the scene, the scene on earth, and that's the introduction of the movie. Then it kind of blacks out. Blacks out. we got this scene in heaven, and it's a conversation between God and Satan. And God says, hey, Job is a righteous guy. He keeps his integrity. He's my guy. And then that scene darkens out. And we go back to earth, and all kinds of bad things are happening on on earth. It's like a movie almost. Right, yeah. So, I mean, but we know that God seems to think that Job's an okay guy. Yeah, he has a very favorable view of him. And, I, uh, you know, he calls him a, he calls him a righteous man. So, uh, but... When you're in suffering, and you were alluding to this earlier, yeah. your views begin to get colored. People, uh, uh, you know, it, when things are going well, yeah. as they were for Job, this is part of the challenge that uh, the Satan puts forward, the, the adversary puts forward. He says, hey, you keep blessing this guy. Uh, if, you, if you cause things to go the wrong way for him, uh, he'll curse you. And so... Uh, I, I think part of what's going on here is is that there's a, a truth here for us about from Job where uh, we are learning that God uses all kinds of things in our lives to bring us into a closer relationship with him. Well, Mike has done a great job at the beginning. And please, folks, hold, hold the applause for Mike down till the end of the show. Please, please. <laughs> And for those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Bible Live Quiz Show. We're on every Sunday evenings at 9. You can call in with any questions or comments. And if you know Mike and you want to say something to him, this is your time. Phone number is 210-340-9585. We will return in a moment with more of the Bible Live Quiz Show. Stay tuned. Thanks. Stan Shelton, with offices at Loop 410 and Broadway, has taken care of the Dollar family that's Suzanne and me plus our three children for the past 25 years. Suzanne, tell the folks about our dentist. Well, like you say, Dr. Shelton is a dentist for a lifetime. He's got the latest technology. He's busy, but I've never had to wait. And I never dread going to the dentist. In fact, he and his staff are so personable that I actually rather enjoy it. Go to DrShelton.com or call 590-7878. God has a master plan for us. Take heart and walk in faith. 
Hi, and welcome to another daily encouragement from the Our Daily Bread devotional. Today's reading, titled Faithful in Captivity, was written by Estera Piroska Escobar. Harlan Popov had no idea what turn his life would take when the doorbell rang early one morning in 1948. Without any warning, the Bulgarian police took Harlan away to prison because of his faith. He spent the next 13 years behind bars, praying for strength and courage. Despite horrible treatment, he knew God was with him, and he shared the good news of Jesus with fellow prisoners, and many believed. In the account from Genesis 27, Joseph had no idea what would happen to him after he was mercilessly sold by his angry brothers to merchants who took him to Egypt and sold him to Potiphar, an Egyptian official. He found himself in a culture surrounded by people who believed in thousands of gods. To make things worse, Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph. When Joseph refused repeatedly, she falsely accused him, leading to his being sent to prison. Yet God did not abandon him. Not only was he with Joseph, but Genesis chapter 39 says he also gave him success in everything he did, and even showed him kindness and granted him favor with those in authority. Imagine the fear Joseph must have felt. But he remained faithful and kept his integrity. God was with Joseph in his difficult journey and had a master plan for him. He has a plan in mind for you too. Take heart and walk in faith, trusting he sees and he knows. Today's encouragement was provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries. Middle of the night or middle of the day, you'll hear messages of God's Word from national and local hosts you know and trust all day, every day on AM 630 The Word and now through your Alexa device. More at am630theword.com. Hey, this is Bob Olszewski. Thanks for listening to Plugged In. Chris Brown, one of the most controversial R&B singers today, has released his ninth studio album, Indigo. It features 15 different guest artists, including such heavy hitters as Drake, Justin Bieber, and Nicki Minaj. Brown insists that Indigo is a colorful album about energy, love, light, and happiness. Discerning listeners, however, will pick up on a number of other shades here. This 32-track album is replete with filthy lyrics dealing with such topics as sex, assault, drugs, and materialism. There are some occasional introspective moments, but any positives are cratered by all the rest. For a full review, visit PluggedIn.com slash radio. I'm Bob Olszewski for Focus on the Family's Plugged In. Find out more about your favorite programs and the ministries on AM630 The Word by going to the program guide at am630theword.com. There, you'll get connected to the ministry website, email, and phone number. Plus, find out when your favorite show airs on the program guide at am630theword.com. And you're listening to the Bible Live Quiz Show. I'm John Harrison, sitting in for Soapy, well, sort of. And we have Jacob with us today. By the way, if you'd like a, a, a transcript of tonight's program, go get a pen or pencil and write down everything we say. <laughs> All right, and now here's our friend Jacob. Oh, I love that. That was great. 
That's a great thing you just said, John. Oh, and the phone number again is 210-340-9585. 210-340-9585 in case you want to participate with a question or a comment. Okay. Well, listen, Mike, um, I know we're going to go into Ecclesiastes and we want to spend some time on Galatians because that's over in the Christian scriptures. But uh, is there anything you'd like to finish up with with your thoughts about Job? Sure. Uh, I noticed one of the questions that was asked uh, from the Bible Live quiz questions is, what unique thing for the era in which they lived did Job do for his daughters? And if you look in Job 42.15, it says, In all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters. They were very beautiful, evidently, very beautiful daughters. Uh, and their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. And I think what's interesting about that is is that it's just quite unexpected uh, just culturally. I, it, not, not within the Hebrew culture, but outside of, uh, in the, the cultures around, the surrounding cultures, this would have been, uh, uh, I would say, it, it doesn't happen. Yeah, and you're 100% right. Um, people do tend to get the... Hebrew or the Jewish scriptures mixed up with uh, Arab tradition because Arab traditions are the ones that actually do the buying and selling or giving a bride price to the father. Actually, uh, uh, you'll find in in the book of Genesis, uh, you'll actually find like when they go to get the wife for Isaac, Rebecca, he, uh, the gifts are taken but given to the woman. And they actually say, uh, well, let's ask her if see if she wants to go. Well, that is totally contrary to, as you're pointing out, to the Arab idea about she's just chattel, she's just property. I know a lot of people say that, but when I hear them say that, I also know they're not really familiar with the Bible, nor God's approval of uh, Jewish culture, shall we say. Mm, that's very smart. Uh, anyway, so is there anything else you want to point out? That's all for me. That's it. Well, okay. Moving on from Job, we're going to go to Ecclesiastes. Yes, we're going to go on to Ecclesiastes. Okay. So, Mike, being the scholar you are, what in the world does the name Ecclesiastes mean? <laughs> well, uh, I, I think it has the idea of teacher or something like that. It um, it's it's sometimes translated uh, as the preacher or, or uh, something along that lines. But you were talking to me earlier to, tonight about uh, Koheleth. Is that Koheleth? Koheleth. Koheleth. Yeah. Uh, would you like to talk to us about what that means? Why, sure, I would. That's Thank the you title for the, of the opportunity. Book. Yes, actually, uh, Ecclesiastes is the word that was put on there, I guess, by the Greeks. Sounds Greek. Anyway, and uh, if you, whenever you see things spelled with a Q, you can usually tell it's written from a Christian point of view. When you see it with a K, you know it's coming from a Jewish point of view. But the, the book, name of the book technically in Hebrew is Kohelis. Now, what that actually means is collector. Interesting. Yeah, so he collects these. In fact, uh, I might say that 
Uh, we don't have to go to it right away, but in chapter 12, verse 11, he says, These are the words of the wise men that are like gourds, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. So he's actually collected. See, a lot of people think that he wrote all this and that he wrote all the Proverbs. He really didn't. He collected them. In fact, you know, Proverbs is proverb. I always thought there must be a book called Converb. <laughs> But anyway, so what else would you like to share with us about this fellow named Ecclesiastes, whoever he is? Well, it's an interesting book. In fact, uh, one that's uh, much debate, I'm sure, in both the Jewish and the Christian world as to exactly what the message of the book is. At one point, I think I read there's something like 46 different interpretations of this particular book. That must be Christian, and Jewish is at least 400. <laughs> It's 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 a very it's a very difficult book to kind of uh, uh, unravel and speak about uh, what it, what exactly it is that the uh, that the preacher or the teacher is trying to get at here. It uh, there is some thought uh, among the scholars that perhaps that uh, uh, Ecclesiastes is an attempt to maybe subvert in some ways the proverbial. Uh, understanding of the world. So Proverbs gives us this kind of view of the world in which if you do the right things, good things will happen for you. So we co- we collect wisdom, we become wise, we we follow all these proverbs and things will turn out well for you. I mean, that's the way it ends. The, the book ends Proverbs 30 and 31. It, it as as you 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 start at the beginning as a child, you do all these things, uh, you become wise. And then you get to the end of the book, and uh, you know the wife's blessed, the uh, the husband is uh, you know is this wonderful human being, this wonderful man, and but but Ecclesiastes doesn't really play out like that. Um, there's a lot of uh, uh, disagreement, I would say, even with the proverbial understanding of things. I mean. Uh, he he even seems to be almost a bit cynical, wouldn't you say? <clears throat> Very disappointed with pleasure. <laughs> yes. Ple- pleasure gets boring. Yeah. If you don't work, there's a reason, I think, why God said people talk about resting on the seventh day in the commandments. But that's only part of it. The other part is you shall work six days. That's the other part, because you're producing something. You're supposed to do something worthwhile with your life. Don't just sit around and uh, live on a mountain and contemplate your nebula, as they say. Uh, you're supposed to do something, but then you rest on the seventh day. But uh, but I will say this. There's something interesting uh, that I would like to ask you. Okay? Okay. All right. So, like in, uh see, I agree with you, first of all. It does seem that uh, every, he's saying everything is vanity. Uh, hey, there, here's a piece of interesting information. When they put together the collection of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament as it's called, the Tanakh in Hebrew, um, there was a large debate if uh, Kohelis or Ecclesiastes should be included. Did you know that? I'm not surprised. Well. Yeah, I guess it is a bunch of Jews, <laughs> but uh, but anyway, but but the point is, is that um, uh, you know, and I always say three Jews, six opinions, you know. But um, but my point is, is that 
The reason is, is because exactly what you pointed out, that it seems to be like he's disappointed, uh, the pleasure has just become boring, because if you get everything you want whenever you want it, it actually becomes kind of boring. So that you're not producing something, doing something worthwhile. And so the the rabbis, the scholars who put the Old Testament together, they, they were somewhat reluctant. There's only one line that saved the entire book, and it is because of that line that it's in the Old Testament. Do you know what it is? I'm expecting it's at the very end of the book. Oh, man, that's why you're a scholar. <laughs> yes, it is. It's the very last line. Uh, in fact, um, let's see, where is it? Oh, yes. Um Yes, it says uh, when it says, um, "Do the just do the commandments of God." That's what it's all about. So, when he says that he uh, he said here here is the idea at the conclusion, all has been heard. Keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. Or, that's the English translation. But he's saying, so here's the conclusion. It was because of the thing about keeping the commandments is that line among the Jewish scholars when they first put together that kept that entire book in the Bible. Isn't that interesting? Yes, and I understand why. Because, I mean, the, the, most of the book is, is really a, 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 long, a long list of complaints about the world. It, the, the writer seems to be... Saying, look, the the world is the same; it doesn't change. He he's complaining about the eternal sameness of the world, and so uh, everything he talks about is, uh, well, I tried this and that didn't really give me fulfillment, and I tried this other thing and that gave me fulfillment, and so he's uh, as as the book unfolds, he seems to be saying that uh, kind of in a. Uh, philosophical sense, you know, the world's absurd. The world's failed to live up to my demands. And so uh, it hasn't, it hasn't, things haven't turned out like I expected that they ought to. And uh, I, uh, he, he's questioning. Now, of course, uh, one thing I, as a, as a believer, as a Christian, and then uh, of course, I'm sure uh, from the Hebrew side of things, we, we shouldn't always think of this questioning as being a negative thing. I mean... Um, oh, questioning God is a great uh, historical and traditional Jewish idea. Yes, I, I'm not so sure that's the case with the Christian tradition. I, uh, I have uh, many uh, people I've interacted with in the past who would... Uh, and, and I mean uh, people in the pews, lay people, who would say, I, I just don't know that we ought to be questioning God in that way. And the the writer... Of this book seems to definitely be asking questions and wrestling with the realities of the world. And I'll just make this one point about this. It's interesting because you have Job. It's one of the, it, it is uh, one of the uh, wisdom texts. And you have uh, Ecclesiastes, another wisdom text, and, uh, and then Proverbs. And it seems as if Proverbs kind of gives us this kind of framework for thinking about the world and what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, I want Proverbs world, but that's not the world that I seem to be finding, and he's frustrated by it. And 
Uh, you're right. By the time you get to the end of the book, I think he's uh, he's starting to work it out. He, and, of course, famously, he is uh, – the author of Ecclesiastes is this – is Solomon. Yes, I was gonna, that's what I was getting to. So who actually wrote the book or put it together, collected it or whatever? Yes, Solomon famously yeah. wrote the book. And during uh, as he's laying out his discussion, he talks about wisdom, and he basically says even wisdom, even proverbial wisdom, uh, is insufficient. It just hasn't produced for him what he thought it would. I mean, we're talking about the great... Uh, the great Solomon, the wisest man in the world, and he's he seems to be frustrated. Um, uh, I was uh, I, I was trying to think about if if Solomon were around today, what it was that he would be saying. I, and I wrote this down. He said, "I did all the wisdom pursuits and found them futile and at times untrue." Uh, he says, um, "I've spent days and days." Uh, looking for wisdom on Pinterest, only to find that it doesn't fulfill the desires of my heart. And so it, it seems to me that one truth that we can take away from Ecclesiastes is, is that wisdom alone, in the sense of proverbial wisdom, uh, is not going to bring the satisfaction and the, the joy that having a relationship with God with it's wisdom combined with a relationship with God. It's knowing God combined with wisdom. Wisdom alone is insufficient. You know, that's interesting. Of course, we've discussed this, of course, uh, uh, from, I may, may I say, an umbilical point of view. Uh, wisdom, I know in our culture, our society, wisdom is, of course, the ultimate but in the biblical idea, it always goes to sort of wisdom, understanding, knowledge. And if I could strengthen, I think I'm strengthening what you're just saying, is uh, remember when David, I'm, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Solomon, when he becomes king, he, the cutting the baby in half business. Remember what he prays for? He prays for wisdom, and he gets his wisdom. But he lacks understanding and he lacks knowledge. It's sort of like mm -hmm. wisdom is the seed that comes from God, and you plant that. And But if I don't understand that I should plant the seed, it'll never grow a stock of corn. And if I don't know that I take the corn and I can beat it and make bread, that's my knowledge. If I don't know to do that, all I get is the seed. Mm -hmm. and, here, and so that's really, he prays for wisdom, and he gets it. But that's where it stopped. And uh, I might say, I know that's a, a little different than how we use it in our culture, but uh, also he, what he ended up with, 400 wives and 600 concubines, that proves he wasn't such a smart guy. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, so, but there is something I want to talk about in Chapter 3. Um, chapter 3, you know, it's that great song. And if anybody knows this song, it's... Uh, there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, uh, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. So it goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and he's talking about time. And then he suddenly switches from that, 
And I asked if anybody knows who sung that song and made it famous, you can call in if you like. And you can sing the song for us and tell us the group. And you <laughs> will not win the Cadillac tonight, but you can oh. do that. But what's interesting to me is going deeper into chapter 3, verse uh, let's see, 19, you ha- uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull a... What I do to Soapy. Do you have a Bible with you this evening, Michael? I do. Ah, look at nineteen, twenty, and twenty-one. What do you think about those? I suspect you want me to read those. I was suspecting that I could convince you. Okay. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there's no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. All go to the same place, all came from the dust, and all return to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? Now, there is, in a nutshell, the Jewish thought of life and afterlife. Uh, I'm not, the, the Hebrew word isn't necessarily important, but yeah, loosely equivalent, it can be paradise, heaven, whatever, uh, a Garden of Eden, uh, it's Olam Habaz, the Hebrew, but it's, a, it's an afterlife idea. But it really captures the idea. So when he's talking about physical stuff, obviously, and look what he says when he says, uh, sons of men and beast, he's distinguishing between animals and beast, and he says it's the same. In other words, they both die, they both go to the ground. But then he says, because uh, 28 says they both return to dust from where they came. And, uh, by the way, you ever you ever figure out, do you ever think about this? Why is it that the legs were taken off of the snake, the serpent, and he had to crawl on his belly through the dust for all his existence? I have no idea. Ah, I love this idea. It's because he has become, in the Christian idea, the enemy, the accuser, uh, adversary if you like, but accuser I like. And what he's done is he took man back to where he originally came from. And so the remnants of man, a human being that God created, was just going to end up being dust. So for all of the snake serpent's eternity, he has to live in the remnants of what's left from man for what he did to the human beings. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Anyway. Very good. So look at 21. It says, who knows that the breath of man ascends upward? But the breath of the beast. Now, this we're reading it from. I'm reading from the English, and I'm looking presently at the NASB. Now, breath in Hebrew is the same word for spirit. Same word. Yes. So he's saying the spirit of man goes upward. In other words, to God, let's say. But the breath—that's another word. That's uh, what's called a nephesh, you might say. That's the beast. That's what makes animates a beast, makes a beast alive. So he says, but he's saying, you know, I can visually see that we physically all die. Our bodies die. But how do we really know that uh, the spirit of a human being goes to God and the, the soul, I'm distinguishing between spirit and soul, the soul of an animal goes downward into the earth? How do we know that? So what? It, tell me something. What do you make of that? I don't know that I can answer that question. I, uh, 
I assume that from uh, what the Bible teaches, we uh, when we die, we go to be with God, and God is uh, in another realm. I guess we uh, the way the way the ancients thought about the world was is that uh, up or towards the heavens was where God was, and so we went to be with uh, we would go and be with. The divinity, I, I assume. Is that where you're going? Yeah, yeah. I was wondering because um, I think it's a fair thing to say, and you correct me if I'm wrong, that certainly in, in the Christian thought that it's very important that after you die you go to heaven, I guess, or in the afterlife. Sure. That's very important. And, uh, and so uh, here it is that it's clearly anticipated in Solomon's thought, which is clearly and always has been Jewish concepts that there is something after right. after this, and that he is uh, acknowledging actually the Jewish concept that the spirit, shall we say, the breath, is going back to God. Mm-hmm. In fact, you want to hear something funny? Sure. Okay, me too. Say something. <laughs> <laughs> no, but so. Um, you ever see these old black and white movies about, you know, the barmaid comes in and slaps the guy in the bar on the chest and says, you big galoot. You ever see this? Sure, yeah. Uh-huh. Galoot is is uh, like the place, the Hebrew word for like where the, you might say the souls or the spirits of the individuals are kept before they come to earth. So she's saying, you big dummy just got to earth. You don't know anything. You're not educated. You're just a big dummy, you big galoot. He just got here, you know. In other words, he's not very smart. So that's, yeah, and, and uh, I mean, who would have thought that a, a movie would have something Jewish in it, you know? All right. Uh, but, um, Cowboys and Indians. Yeah, so but so, but so, so it's actually there. So it, he's actually dealing uh, with this issue. And really, I mean, if somebody asks a question today, I mean, how do you know that, uh, how do you really know? that there is a God, that there really is something afterwards. And he's asking this, and the reason I'm saying that is because it seems to go back to what Hubert were proposing, that he seems like everything is vanity. Vanity is the word we use. Right. And, uh, but it does seem that he's saying, I, I don't really know. It's pointless. All I know for sure is that we go back to dust. Yeah, futility, meaninglessness. It, yeah. It's uh, uh, Albert Camus, the philosopher, he, he, he called it the absurd. He, he wasn't speaking from a biblical context, but that's what he, when he was talking about life, he said this, this, this whole existence is absurd. Uh, the, the, the preacher would be a, a nice example, uh, a, example of this. Well, yeah. And speaking of Camus, didn't he end up committing suicide? I believe he did. And uh, he did it in a way that perhaps most of us could not afford to do it. He got in his brand new, very expensive Jaguar and drove as fast as go well over 100 miles an hour, as I recall, and drove into a stone wall. So ultimately, he answered the question. <laughs> I guess he did. He got the answer that he was seeking. That's right. Well, listen, John, how much time we got left? We got one minute. So, Mike, say something very clever in one minute. Okay, uh, that's that all. was good. That's, that's I got I got I got nothing. I got, right. I got nothing. No, right. uh, I, I actually do have a comment I want to make. I well, guess please we'll have try to, come to back. squeeze it in real quick. We'll have to come back to the oh. to the next break because okay. I'm just uh, I don't think I can do it in the one minute uh, time limit that we've got. So.
Ah, so we'll have to have another season. So we're going to renew the contract for another season? <laughs> Possibly. Okay. Possibly. All right, John, are we pretty good? Uh, yeah, just a few seconds here. Okay. Another opportunity to give out the phone number. Oh, that would be great. And as I wrote down what Mike had told me earlier, it's 210-340-9585. Wait, hold on. I'm going to make no. sure I write that down. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I need to erase the last number. That was oh, okay. What was it again? <laughs> I got 210-340-9585. That sounds right. Okay, I think that's right, yeah. Uh-oh, there's the music. And oh, there you go. I found the song. Of course I did. Oh, I did. Our, our, our listeners are smart. I, I'm sure they know who this is. <laughs> well, how many of them called in? I, I, will, I will give a hint. David Crosby, Roger McGuinn, Michael Clark, Gene Clark, and Chris Hillman. Tweet, 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 tweet. Alrighty, you're listening to the Bible Live Quiz Show, and we will return after these messages. Do stay tuned. You're listening to the Bible Live Quiz Show this Sunday evening. I'm John Harrison. And uh, no, I, I I am not Soapy Dollar posing as John Harrison. I'm just me. Soapy's away from the studio today, but we hope you uh, have been listening during the first hour. A lot of great information, a lot of great talk about the Bible. And uh, we're in Ecclesiastes. And uh, so I'm going to throw it back over to, uh, to Jacob. Okay. Mike, you were going to add something about Ecclesiastes. Yeah, I wanted to uh, point no, your attention. By the way, not to interrupt, but didn't you like that last song? I did like that. I like that, too. John did a good job. Thank you, John. I like the birds. Thank too. you very much. Uh, Ecclesiastes 4.13. Um, it, says, uh, it says here, A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. And one of the things oh, I think like it's interesting about this is, and uh, for those of you that are uh, in our audience that may be a little bit younger, I mean, uh, this is this is the case both in Job and in Ecclesiastes. It seems that the the authors are both basically saying, you know, the, the typical idea that when you get older, you get wiser, is not necessarily the case, that in fact... That within youth, uh, in, in the the younger people, uh, Elihu is a young person. He's the youngest. That's the reason he waits till the last to speak. He seems to be the closest to having the correct understanding of God. So wisdom doesn't belong to the elderly or the mature necessarily. And so I, I think it's fascinating that in both of these books, there is an affirmation that uh, young people can become wise. I have no objection whatsoever saying they can become wise. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, 
right, listen, we only got a half an hour left, and I want to get into the Galatians. Oh, you want to mention something about Song of Songs, didn't you? Yeah, I, I did. I there, uh, there, There's a couple of things about Song of Solomon that are interesting to me. One is is that it's a, it's a very difficult book uh, to interpret as well. Uh, it's been used in a couple of different ways. One of the things that I like about the Bible is is that it has uh, it, there's a fullness of meaning. It, the The Bible can be interpreted in such a way as to uh, uh, I, I don't buy into kind of the modern conception that there's one interpretation and that's the right uh, interpretation. Yeah, mine. Uh, yeah, mine. mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. I I I think that uh, uh, the Song of Solomon has been utilized uh, within the Christian tradition uh, both to teach. Uh, uh, love and marriage truths, as well as to uh, talk to us about uh, our relationship with God. And so uh, a couple of things I wanted to mention. There's a Bible study that's out there that my wife and I have greatly benefited from. It's called Song of Solomon, God's Best for Love, Marriage, Sex, and Romance. It's part of the Tommy Nelson Bible Study series. And by the way, I'm not getting any kickback for this or anything, but it's just an excellent series. And if I... Uh, if I was doing marriage counseling or thinking about getting married to someone, this is a video series that I would definitely watch. He, he, uh, and and it, there's actually a book, and I'm sure there's CDs as well or whatever. But it's a it's a great study. I think it could be amazing. The other thing I wanted to bring up was that when you talk about this book, uh, it's been used within the Christian tradition to talk about communion with particularly the triune God, the, the Trinity. The, 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 uh, it's also been used to talk about Jesus Christ and the church, the bride of Christ. And so it's been interpreted in that way, and it's a fascinating read I, I, uh, or fascinating uh, study. I actually have a book here with me. It's called Communion with the Triune God. It's, it's from John Owen. Uh, John Owen is a, uh, a, a Puritan minister, he lived 1616 to 1683, and he wrote this book, and it's a fascinating book, and throughout it, he keeps going back to Song of Songs. He, uh, in fact, he quotes from it 65 times as he's talking about the relationship of believers with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so uh, it, it, it's interesting because, I mean, uh, the only other books that get any more attention are uh, Isaiah and Psalms, which are very long books. But Song of Songs in the in the, the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament, it gets sixty-five mentions in this book, and he's he views the our relationship with God as being something like a a husband-wife relationship. He it's supposed to be intimate. It's supposed to be. There's supposed to be closeness and personal. There's a personal nature to it, and I just think that's fascinating. Well, you know, what's fascinating too is because very similarly uh, to the uh, idea of you said it was like in the Christian thought, Jesus and Christians, that kind of stuff. <coughs> uh, historically, many many Jews have understood to be a story between God and Israel. So the same type of interpretation does take place. <coughs> Well, are you ready to go to Galatians? I am. Okay, then let's go to the Galatians. 
Um, let's uh, let's say, is there something that you'd like to like open up with? Something that's on your mind? Well, I'll give a few facts about Galatians. Oh, good facts. Yeah. Um, uh, since John, take this down. Since both Romans and Galatians teach the doctrine of justification by faith, um, Romans has been called uh, an expansion of Galatians. And then sometimes you'll hear people say Galatians is just a short Romans. So you, uh, the, the, the truth that's present there, the idea that we are justified by faith alone, is in both books. Uh, I also want to make the comment, it seems to have been written during the time in which Christianity was certainly distinguishing itself within uh, uh, Judaism or even even beginning to separate itself in some ways. Uh, uh, third, this letter played a key role in the Reformation. It's been called the cornerstone of the Protestant Reformation. Luther was so enamored with the book that he called it his wife. Yikes. Yeah, he lectured on it so frequently and extensively uh, that... Uh, his his comments on it were became a commentary, and it was one of the most widely read books of the Reformation, and I mean here among the common people. So uh, this is a this is a very significant book. It was likely a circular letter that was shared by the churches that were in that Galatian region. Hmm. You know, uh, that's interesting. I am told about the same thing about Galatians. And I'm told the key verse that he really loved so much, Now I don't know if this is true, you can correct me, was uh, Galatians 2.16. Have you ever heard that? I, I haven't. Well, because um, what I am told by uh, people that seem to know what they're talking about they say that uh, he loved the book, as you said, and he always makes references and arguments uh, against the a prevailing theology that existed, you know, prior to him. Uh, of course, he ended up marrying and having what eighteen, nineteen kids or something. <laughs> um, but uh, but anyway, so but I'm told that his uh, two sixteen was at least I've been led to believe was his primary verse. Um, would you like to read that? Maybe was or not? Sure. Why not? 2.16. Uh, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. And and I think any Christian would agree with that, right? Sure. Sure. And I actually think that most Jews would agree with that. Interesting. Well, if it's interesting, let's discuss it. Can I can I go back to just the very beginning? Oh, of it? course, of course. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, I did some study just yesterday and I was thinking about what we were going to talk about. And so when you go into the first chapter, one of the things that you see that's happening is is Paul he's clearly responding to some criticism. Some someone uh, has come to this group of churches, I assume, in in Galatia, and has been undermining. They're they're saying about Paul. They're saying, you know, this gospel that you've got from Paul is kind of weak tea, really. 
he hasn't given you the whole story. And uh, so when he opens up this book, uh, uh, Paul is already on the defensive. I mean, when you when you go to uh, verse six, one six, he says, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, listen to this verse eight. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Uh, anathema is the word. We'll have to talk about that. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. And then he kind of responds here kind of rhetorically. He said, so now, he said, am I seeking the favor of men or of God? He's, he's responding. And they're saying, well, you know, Paul, you've been giving this kind of favorable view. It's uh, kind of a... a uh, a weak gospel. He says, uh, you're, uh, he, he is responding to that criticism in, uh, in a rather harsh way. Now, when you get down to verse 11, look at what he says here, because I think it's fascinating. He says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. Make a note of that. It's not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so uh, this revelation of Jesus Christ, a lot of people point back to, and I think it's probably right, is it's his Damascus Road experience. So he's saying that I, I received the gospel that I preached to you and that you believed from Jesus himself. Now, then he goes on, and, 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 and I, this is the first time I've really noticed this. Uh, and I thought it was fascinating. So he says, uh, you go down to verse 18. He, well, in the following verses, he basically says, well, he said, after I received this revelation, he said then, uh, I'm assuming he went out and started preaching. He started preaching the gospel. He he says he was set apart in verse 15 from his mother's womb to reveal the son that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Particularly, it's important to note, to the Gentiles. That's who he's, who he's called to go to. And he said, notice this, verse 17, I, did, I, did, uh, I didn't go up, nor did I go up to Jerusalem uh, to those who were apostles before me. So he's saying, for a period of time, I didn't even go to Jerusalem. So it, what he's claiming is is that my gospel didn't come from anyone except Jesus. Now, notice verse 18. He says, Now three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, and I stayed with him for 15 days. But I didn't see any other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And then he says, 2, verse 1, After an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along. It was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, and I, but I did so in private to those who were reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Mm. But not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised. So my point here is, is that 
Paul is out there preaching this gospel that he received from Jesus Christ for 17 years before he goes to Jerusalem. And I think before he goes to Jerusalem and, and, and gets approval, I think this goes back to Acts 15. So he's been out there, he's been preaching this gospel that he says he got from direct revelation from Jesus. And it goes in Acts chapter 15 and uh, uh, basically is asking for apostolic approval of his message. What does that mean for people that don't know? He is asking, he's going to Peter and James and John, and he's saying, uh, okay, uh, I've been preaching this gospel. Uh, I just want to make sure that I've got it right. And do you, could we turn to Acts chapter 15? I think we could. John, is it okay? Can we do that? You have my seal of approval. Uh, okay, let's hear it. Oh, 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 oh. That's a seal. <laughs> So it's fascinating because uh, what happens is, is in Acts 15, you have this council that meets. And there's uh-huh. three groups there uh-huh. um, that, are, that are present. There's three groups in the room. Uh, the first group is the group that is calling for circumcision. You see them in verse 1. Uh-huh. Some men came to Judea and they began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. Mm-hmm. So that's one group. Okay. In verse 5, there's another group. It says, But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had stopped, who had believed, stood up, saying, It's necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Okay. And then notice verse 6. It says, The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, that's important. These groups were not all on the same page. After there had been much debate, it says Peter stands up and he says, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving which, them the I'm Holy sorry, Spirit. I'm sorry, which verse are you reading now? This is 15 verse 7. 7, okay. Uh, and then following. Verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. It says all the people kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And this is critical to understanding what's happening. So there's there's these groups in the room that are saying, look, uh, in order to be a Christian, you have to be circumcised. Paul says... People are getting the Holy Spirit. They're believing in Jesus, and they're not circumcised. There are people in the room that are saying, in order to be a believer, in order to get saved, you're going to need to be circumcised, and you need to follow the law of Moses. Peter's saying, look, uh, I've been there. I've, I preached the gospel. People are believing. 
and they're receiving the Holy Spirit. They're neither circumcised nor are they, they, they don't even know what the law is. So uh, he's, he's saying that his gospel for the Gentiles is one that does not require the Mosaic Code. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, I agree with you. Uh, he's saying that, and I think he's right, too. I agree with, I actually agree with that. In fact, would you be kind enough? Could you, would you be kind enough to, uh, let's take a look at verse uh, 1521? 1521. Yes. Because yes. actually this is, 1521 uh, is Jewish law, and as far as I know, has always been Jewish law. So I, I, I agree with you that these guys are in this meeting, and some guys have evidently their own agenda. But they're evidently also wrong because we know that James is in charge, Jesus' brother, and he makes a judgment. And th- and in 21, he actually cites something. Please go ahead. Yeah, he says, For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he's read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Right. So actually, that's always been. So I, I think you're 100% right, and I agree with you. Uh, that uh, this is talking about these guys and they're debating about the circumcision. But it's never been Jewish religion, not at least the predominant one, that, uh, and so James says in 1521, for Moses from ancient generations in every city it's preached him. So he's going back and laying the original understanding that even from Moses there's never been an understanding that Gentiles had to keep the law or had to be circumcised. So, I, I actually, I agree with you 100% that he's saying, no, no, we're not going to put that on them. That's never been traditionally Jewish understanding, and Moses taught everywhere among all the Jews even today that's not what's there. So, you guys that are perpetuating this idea, I don't know where you got the idea from, but it's not right. Yeah, in... When you look in Genesis chapter in Genesis in Galatians chapter three, ah, there you go. Um, uh, basically, what Paul says is, he says, "You believed in Jesus apart from circumcision. Uh-huh. You received the Holy Spirit apart from the law." Mm-hmm. He says, "You don't need to start practicing these things after right. you get saved." Right. Uh, uh, he says, "You're saved by faith in Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. who died for your sins, and this salvation is evidenced by the Holy Spirit." And you just need to live according to uh, uh, the holy the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And so, when you study these the books of Galatians and Ephesians, you'll notice that they always start. The first part of the books are always theological. Uh, chapters one to four, for example, in Galatians, and then chapters five and six are more applicational. They're more. This is how you live the Christian life. And uh, Ephesians is chapters one to three is theological, four to six is uh, more practical. And you'll find this throughout Paul's letters. So he first is teaching them what the truth is, and then he next then moves to a discussion of uh, how to live it out. Would you agree with me, uh, only in the interest of time here? Sure. Uh, Would you agree with me that uh, basically what, as I get from Galatians, as I told you earlier, I thought this was the uh, first time I ever read it. I thought it was some type of a, like a dog, like Dalmatians or something, because you know, there's a place called Dalmatians. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but, um, all right, but over in chapter 3, 
Uh, would you agree with me that he's saying, look, Abraham, promises were made to Abraham, and therefore, uh, if Abraham had those promises, even though in verse uh, 17 it says, while I, am, while I am saying that the law, which came 430 years later after the promises that were made to Abraham, he's saying, so the law at Sinai came down 430 years afterwards, but the law did not nullify the promises to Abraham. So therefore, Ed, it's clear, you do not have to, as a Gentile, you do not have to be circumcised, and you do not have to follow the Jewish law. People are certainly free if they want to do that, but they're not required to do that. Would you agree if that's what he's saying? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly what he's getting at. The uh Paul is concerned with the uh the people in this in within these churches, these Galatian churches that are adding th- they're adding things to the gospel. The gospel that he received directly from Jesus, he's concerned about things being added in. Now, let me tell you what I think is kind of behind it. So what's behind it is this. There's the possibility in the future of Christianity, if they go the route of adopting circumcision and uh, following Mosaic Code, that there'd be like a two-tiered system. So you have the serious Christians that are circumcised, and they're following the Mosaic Code, and these Gentile Christians will become kind of like second-class citizens. And so what Paul is resisting in Galatians is he's saying, no, 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 I'll have none of it. He says, you're not saved by the Mosaic Code. You're not saved by circumcision. These things are not essential. What is essential is faith in Jesus Christ. You're made righteous by your faith placed in Jesus Christ. I think that's, I agree that's what he's saying. And Mike, is there anything, we've only got like a minute left, is there anything you'd like to conclude with that you'd like to share with people or say something? I'd like to give you the last minute. Oh, there's our music, Mike. Uh, I guess I lost my opportunity. Oh, well, okay. I will say this, though. Always be the kind of person you would like to have for a parent. And thank you for joining us for the Bible Live Quiz Show. And thank you, Mike. And Sophie should be back next week. Thank you for listening, and have a good evening. The Bible Live is dedicated to helping restore the Bible to our culture. Mailing address is P.O. Box 18888. That's Box 18888. San Antonio, Texas 78218. Hear the entire Bible every year on The Bible Live, weeknights at 9.30 on this great station. Then join Soapy every Sunday evening at 9 o'clock for fun, inspiration, and valuable prizes on The Bible Live Quiz Show. Visit our website, BibleLive.com. That's BibleLive.com for more information about Soapy and the Bible Live broadcast. You may also order materials at the website and make tax-deductible donations to help minister to our military personnel and broadcast the entire Bible every year to America and the world.